0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to be long for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Operation Mincemeat, which is a very famous bit of chicanery indeed from the Second World War. Now, what happened was this, right? Uh, during the sort of the, the midsection of the war, this around 1942, 1943, uh, a period when Nazi Germany had a lot of, uh, mu- much of continental Europe, you know, in, a, in, a, in its stranglehold, they were controlling, they controlled much of the continent. During this period, the, the Allies, specifically the British, they were seeking to trick the Nazis into thinking that there was going to be an Allied invasion to try to liberate, uh, liberate Europe that was going to be staged in Greece, right, through Greece and into, into the Balkans and also in Sardinia. Now, this wasn't the case, right? They, in fact, were planning to attack uh, southern Europe through Sicily. But in order to mislead the Nazis into thinking that there was going to be an attack through Greece... In 1943, the British planted fake military intelligence on a corpse and dumped it off the Spanish coastline, hoping the nominally neutral Spaniards would pass on this false information to the Nazis, which they duly did when they fished the body out of the water, causing Hitler to personally order the redeployment of troops from Italy to Greece and Sardinia to reinforce against this supposed attack that, of course, wasn't coming. Operation Mincemeat was a big part of the Allies getting a foothold into the Mediterranean, uh, which in turn was, you know, a very big part of turning the tide against the Nazis in the latter stages of the war. And, you know, even what I've told you about it now, fake military intelligence being hidden on a corpse that was then floated into the, the Spanish coastline, I mean, that guarantees you're getting a good story then and there. But there are so many other incredible details, so many other unbelievable facets of this operation to think about. For example, where did they get the corpse? How did the British convince the Nazis it was a real officer with real military plans? How did they make certain the plans had been read and then also that the ruse had been fallen for? Well, all this and so much more on another episode of Half-House History here filled with intrigue and and, and trickery. I can't bloody wait, mate. Um, But before we begin, I want to thank alert listeners Joe Lynch and Ryan McIntyre and look, many others, uh, such as alert listener, James, probably, uh, who have sent this topic in as a a suggestion uh, over over the months and years. It is a great bit of history. It's fascinating. It is unbelievable in equal parts, really. So let's get to it. Here we go. We're going all the way back. Here we're going all the way back to 1939 with the outbreak, of course, of the Second World War in that year. In September 1939, a paper known as the Trout Memo was circulated through military intelligence agencies within the UK. Now, it wasn't called the Trout Memo because someone named Trout wrote it, it was a memo that used the metaphor of fly fishing, of all things, to explore different tricks, ruses and, you know, cunning plans that could be used to bamboozle an enemy in wartime. Now, the Trout memo was officially published by the Director of Naval Intelligence, Rear Admiral John Godfrey. But it was actually probably written by none other than Lieutenant Commander Ian Fleming, the author of James Bond, episode 173, Get Across It. Anyway, one of the suggestions in the Trout Memo, number 28 it was, was entitled, A Suggestion, and then in brackets, not a very nice one. And it proposed planting fake military documents on a corpse dressed as an officer that would then be found by the enemy. Now, look, this wasn't a new idea. It had been used in the First World War and even a little bit in the Second. But after a plane crash in Spain in September 1942, there was a plan for a very complex and in-depth ruse that started to come into focus. Because in this, uh, in this plane crash in Spain, right, a British military officer with, in possession of, of, of top-secret documents had been killed and the Spanish had returned the body to the British, as you do, but not before they had rifled through the body, you know, the pockets and, and the uh, the personal effects of this body, and handed over anything that they thought was useful to the Nazis, which who then you know photographed it before the documents were put back on the body and was given back to the British like nothing happened. Now. The Spanish, as I say, I mean, this is complicated. They were nominally neutral. We're not going to get into the role of Spain in the Second World War because it's confusing and it's complicated, can't be asked. I mean, this is half our history, and I think doing that would well and truly take it into the realm of whole last history. But suffice to say, the, the, the Spanish, they played both sides a lot of the time. Anyway, the Spanish, they were confirmed to have been passing these, you know, passing this information on to the Nazis – uh, thanks to this this plane crash. And, and, and the British learned an important lesson from this, right? And, and uh, thankfully as well, them passing stuff onto the Nazis after this plane crash came to nothing. The documents that they copied and handed over were dismissed as irrelevant. But it did make the British sit up and realise that this was a good way for them to feed false information, right? To leak, in this, to leak you know, fake military plans or whatever else, military intelligence, into the, into the hands of the Nazis without raising suspicion. And so... About a month after this plane crash, an intelligence officer whose name was Charles Chumley, which is spelt Cholmondley, but pronounced Chumley because English is, you know, the world's most perfect language. Chumley began to put this, this plane into action. He was a part of MI5 and he made, he made, he made the following suggestion. Here it is in his, in his own words. <coughs> A body is obtained from one of the london hospitals the lungs are filled with water and documents are disposed in an inside pocket the body is then dropped by a coastal command aircraft on being found the supposition in the enemy's mind may well be that one of our aircraft has either been shot or forced down and that this is one of their passengers now initially chumley's bosses they binned his proposal they put it in the back burner they weren't interested they said it was too outlandish it wasn't going to work but then, maybe, you know, maybe Chumley's gone around and had a quiet word in this ear or that ear. But eventually, he was given the support of another fellow, uh, uh, Ewan Montague, right, to work alongside him, alongside, alongside Chumley here, to see if they could refine the plan and, pre- uh, and present a workable version of it. Now, the first thing that these two fellows needed, rather obviously, was a body. If they were going to make this plan work, if they were going to come back to their bosses and say, well look, we actually can get this whole thing together, they needed a body to use and you might have you might have thought, well, I mean, you know, it's the middle of a huge war. The fact that it's wartime would probably mean there's no shortage of dead body for the bodies for them to use. But it wasn't that simple. Because after going about and asking coroners for, you know, a spare they were told that every single one of these corpses had to be accounted for, as you'd you know, as you'd expect, actually, thinking about it, because there'd be relatives, there'd be loved ones who would come and claim the bodies of those lost in the fighting, and they'd want to obviously uh, lay it to rest in, a, in an appropriate way. So they needed the body of someone without any real connections, no friends or family, no one to grieve over them, someone whose death wouldn't have been noted by many. So some early difficulties uh, in, in the opening stages of, of Operation Mincemeat, even before it was known as Operation Mincemeat, but... In early 1943, Chumley and Montague had a stroke of luck because an appropriate body ended up in a London morgue, in a a mortuary, and uh, it was turned over to these two fellas, uh, you know, they'd, they'd talked to the coroner about what they needed, and this bloke was able to provide them with, uh, with the corpse of someone who, interestingly, until 1996, we had no idea who this fella was. It wasn't until, you know, only what, a couple of years ago, really, in the last couple of decades, that we found out the identity of the body that was used as a part of Operation Mincemeat. His name was Glyndua Michael, and he was a bloke from Wales who had fallen on hard times, and he ended up homeless in his early 30s, sadly. With both of his parents dead and no other relatives and no friends, Michael made his way from southern Wales to London, where he lived on the streets for a while, the poor bloke, and eventually he died. His body was found in an abandoned warehouse, and the cause of his death was determined uh, to be due to him eating rat poison. Uh, he found he came across uh, some uh, some bread, some some stale bread where that had had this poison smeared o- over it, uh, and, and sadly, you know, he'd eaten it. And look, in all honesty, it wasn't just that that killed him. Apparently, he was in bad shape. In any case, his poor health had had been tipped over the edge by eating this poison. Poor fella, and uh, and that was it for him in life, at least. But in death, he was about to serve the Allied war effort like no one else would, because his corpse was just what Chumley and Montague were looking for. This bloke was largely unconnected, no friends, no family, no one to come looking for him. And so, you know, he was the perfect candidate to be used in this, you know, rather macabre media uh, uh, military operation here. So, after t- determining uh, determining that Michael's body was indeed suitable for this operation, the coroner agreed to keep the corpse preserved in a fridge. They couldn't freeze it. Uh, otherwise, it'd be very obvious to anyone who examined the body after it washed up that it had been frozen and defrosted, which obviously wouldn't happen to the victim of a plane crash. Uh, and the coroner gave them a timeline. He talk, he, he went to uh, Chumley in Montague and he said, "Listen, you blokes, you've got three months. Right before this body would decompose to the point that it's no longer going to you know pass uh, pass muster. People are going to be able to recognise that this corpse is long dead if you wait much longer than three months." So. With Chumley and Montague now having their corpse in hand, they were able to put their plan into action properly. They named their operation Operation Mincemeat, they presented a rework proposal to their bosses, and this time it was greenlit. So now the real work began. Chumley and Montague had to create a whole new identity for this corpse, and what's more, they had to make this identity hold up under significant scrutiny. So on top of actually preparing the body... Uh, you know, from a medical sense to get through a a post-mortem. They also had to construct an entire military officer identity that was actually going to stand up to being examined, uh, you know, if this bloke's credentials were ever questioned by the people that, uh, that found him, whether that was the Spanish or the Nazis once the information was passed on. So... They created the identity uh, under the name of Captain Acting Major William Martin of the Royal Marines, and even this, even these details here—the name, the rank, and 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 the the you know part of the military that he was involved in, the Royal, Royal Marines—these were very, very deliberate choices, right? And I'll tell you why. So, firstly, an acting major would be high up enough to carry around secret documents like the ones that they intended to plant on the body, but not so high up as to be publicly known or recognisable, uh, you know, particularly broadly by anyone. Secondly, the last name Martin was reasonably common, and there were actually a couple of Royal Marines around the captain rank that he might be confused with if, if, you know, if the enemy had some sort of personnel register or anything else like that. This was a name that, that cropped up a fair bit. And thirdly, His position as a Royal Marine helped with both a logistical issue and an intelligence issue. It would mean that he would be wearing a very common and very readily available uniform, known as the British battle dress, right? That was what a Royal Marine of his rank would be dressed in. Uh, But as he would also be a naval officer as a Marine, any inquiries about this bloke internally would end up in the awful office of Naval Intelligence, the office, of course, for which Chumley and Montague worked. So that this meant that if anyone, you know, within the Allied forces started asking questions, who's this fellow William Martin, never heard of him before, Naval Intelligence could have a quiet word with them to keep the whole thing secret and make sure they kept their trap shut, right? So with this identity established, it was time to make it convincing with supporting documentation of all kinds. Sure, you know identity cards, secret documents, and all that is well and good. But to really nail the deception, there needed to be evidence of a much deeper but much more day-to-day nature, you know, things like photos and love letters and other correspondence, personal effects, receipts, stuff like keys had to be planned on the body. It's funny to think about because, you know, we don't really spare much thought about the things that we take around with us all, all the time that give evidence of the fact that we're real people, Right. But Chumley and Montague had to do exactly this. They had to fabricate all of it and convincingly enough to make sure that acting major Martin would not only pass a medical post-mortem, but also seem like a real person with real personal effects. So in order to do that, here's a list of all the stuff that they put in his pockets. They put some cigarettes and matches, put a set of keys, a pencil stub, a silver cross, a book of stamps, a letter from his dad, who was also a made-up person, which included a note from, a, from a, of the family lawyer a receipt for a shirt, a letter from Lloyd's Bank, ticket stubs from a London theatre that also coincided or corresponded with a receipt for four nights lodging in London that was relatively recent. And they even invented a fiancé for this bloke, complete with love letters and a picture. There was a woman who worked in MI5, she was a clerk, and they took a picture of her, or they used a picture of her. Uh, and popped it in his pocket as though the, the two of them were engaged. And for good measure, they put a receipt for an engagement ring in there as well, right? But the most interesting item, right, the most interesting item, and perhaps the one they spent, you know, a lot of time on here, was his official military ID card. Because they had more than a few hurdles with this one, right? The ID card needed to have a photo attached to it. But try what they might, every time they photographed the corpse, it looked like... A corpse they couldn't get a photo of this bloke you know this 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 dead body without making it look very obviously like a dead body so they had to scour you know the 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 officers and the agencies that they were working with to try to find just anyone who looked vaguely like this fella anyone who looked kind of like Michael and, and then eventually they did find someone they dressed him up in the in the, in the battle dress like in a royal Marine uniform and took a picture of him. And so that was the photo taken care of. But next, they had to make this ID card seem like it was older than it was, because why would a long-serving officer be carrying around a brand new card? In the end, what they did quite cleverly is they made it seem like he had lost his original card and that this one was a replacement. They dated the card as having been a replacement for one that had gone missing. But now, in order to make it look older than it was, you know, because, again, it, it couldn't look like it, it had been freshly created. There had to be a bit of wear and tear to it. Montague went around, right, with, with the card in his pocket, and whenever he had a spare minute, he would take it out and rub it against his pants to wear it down, you know, get a bit of wear and tear around the edges and get, get a few scuffs and that sort of thing on it, right? But even funnier than this, right, when it came to getting him a uniform, again, this uniform they got him was, was, it was brand new. So Chumley put it on and wore it around the office for a few weeks to seem like it had you know it had been worn to seem like it had been used and it went further than just the uniform because they had to find him a pair of undies and undies as you might um, you, you know you might know in in wartime in ration britain underpants were actually in pretty short supply so they had to find a pair to put in the corpse somehow, and they ended up pinching a pair off the estate of a dead politician of all places and whacked them on the corpse. I guess no one was willing to volunteer a nice warm pair of woolen undies, so that to nick one off of a off of a dead person's estate. But they managed to find all the clothing that they needed for this corpse before it would be uh, it would be set adrift. But much more important than the uniform and the ID card and all the other stuff that was put in the pockets, of course, to round out this identity, much, much more important than that, of course, was the actual false military intelligence that was to be planted on the corpse. That was the whole point of the operation, after all. I mean, it's all all well and good tricking the the Nazis or even the Spanish into into thinking they've found a, a legitimate officer here. Great, but there's a pointless exercise unless there was going to be something from it and this was the reason for the whole ruse here so let's take a step back here and talk about what this fake information actually was what its purpose was what it was trying to do and how it fitted into the overall picture of the second world war at this point in 1943 Things are starting to look a bit better than they had been for the Allies. The North African campaign had gone well, the Nazis are struggling with their campaign in the USSR, and there's an opportunity now for the Allies to turn the screws on the Nazi holdings in Southern Europe. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill wanted to mount an attack from the south across the Mediterranean from North Africa, and there were two potential targets for an invasion. They wanted to enter Southern Europe from either Sicily, or Greece, in, and use the, the Greek invasion to attack the Balkans. Now, Sicily was very obviously the best choice, by quite a considerable bloody margin, uh, seizing control of the island, island would open up the Mediterranean to the Allies and their ships, particularly merchant shipping, and, uh, and it would, it would support a continued invasion through Italy. In early 1943, the Allies they did they settled on this as, as an invasion target. They decided they were going to invade Italy, but the problem was that it was the it was the obvious choice. It was the choice that the Nazis could safely anticipate. So when preparations for the this invasion would begin, the Nazis and their Axis allies they'd be all over it. They'd bolstered their defences there. They'd realize what was going to happen. They'd be able to predict it and uh, and plan accordingly. Having said that. There was concern amongst the Nazis about an invasion into the Balkans through Greece. And Hitler himself was very concerned about losing the raw materials available in the Balkans. He also had a weird obsession with defending the Balkans, but we're not going get, to get into that. So after choosing Sicily, the Allies were keen to misdirect the attention of Hitler and the Nazis and make them think that the invasion would, after all, be coming to Greece and the Balkans. It was the unlikelier pick. But then again, you know, depending on what level we're on, maybe that's the pick that would make sense. If the Nazis were going to expect an attack in Italy, then they would attack in Greece. So if the Nazis are expecting you to attack in Greece instead of Italy, then you bolster Greece, but then you should actually go back to Italy. So a lot of different levels and double and triple crossing here. So ultimately, however, the decision was made, attack Italy, make them think that that the attack, attack is coming from Greece, however, right? So... The overall operation, right, to bamboozle the Nazis here, was called Operation Barclay. And it was quite a gamble, you know, you might think, considering, once again, that Sicily was the obvious choice. Would the Nazis fall for it? Well, the Allies did everything they could to make it seem like they were they were going to invade Greece. Involved all sorts of things, Operation Barclay, fictional armies, dummy headquarters, these performative military manoeuvres that weren't actually going to go anywhere, bogus radio communications, all these tricks and, uh, and plans, right? The Allies even began hiring Greek interpreters and stockpiled maps of Greece and hoarded Greek currency. I mean, they went deep on this thing, man. I mean, the other thing is they couldn't do it that obviously. They had to do it obviously enough that the Nazis would pick up on it, but not obviously not not so obvious to the point the Nazis going, well, why are they doing this in a way that we're obviously going to discover? You know, it's a very fine line that to draw. But in order to further support Operation Barclay, Operation Mincemeat was to provide the Nazis with this uh, you know, Accidental piece of evidence that would hopefully be a lot more convincing than the manoeuvres and the radio communications and everything else—a piece of private correspondence that between two high-ranking commanders in the Allied uh, in the Allied forces would confirm almost offhand that this invasion was going to be staged through Greece. So. Montague worked very, very hard indeed on the primary document that would be the centrepiece of the operation. And, you know, you might be surprised to learn it was a piece of personal correspondence. You might have thought it was a grand battle plan or a top secret piece of military intelligence. No, the primary document was a personal letter between two high-ranking British commanders, Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Nye and General Sir Harold Alexander. And this letter dealt with all sorts of different stuff. It talked about all different topics and then just had a couple of throwaway lines about this planned invasion of Greece and the Balkans, which, of course, again, was a total fabrication. Now, when I first heard of this story, I would have thought that planned fake maps and plans and all sorts of other stuff on the body. But no, rather than go to such lengths, it was just a couple of lines in this personal letter that referenced these fictional plans to, to, to invade Greece. I mean, which is much more convincing, really. Maybe the Nazis would have smelt a rat if a bloke carrying these top-secret plans had washed up on the Spanish shore, whereas, you know, an oblique reference in a personal letter was much less suspicious. Anyway, Montague, he decided this letter... That he was drafting had to do three things to be convincing it had to be in an official personal bit of correspondence right just again an offhand a bleak reference to it secondly it had to identify very clearly that greece was the target of this invasion again in a casual and offhand manner but it needed to confirm that and thirdly it had to name sicily as the cover for the invasion of greece so rather than Doing, you know, rather than the, what the Allies were doing, obviously, was invading Italy and they invented this cover story about Greece. This letter had to make the Nazis think that they were invading Greece and had a cover story of invading Italy. An absolute masterstroke at the end there. This would mean that were the Nazis to discover preparations that were being made to invade Sicily, the real preparations, they might just dismiss it as a ruse, as outlined in this letter. But. A problem arose as Montague was trying to put this letter together. He just couldn't get it right. No matter how many drafts it went through, it didn't feel natural. It didn't feel organic. It didn't feel like a a, a genuine piece, an authentic piece of personal correspondence. And the solution they came up with to solve this problem was actually quite ingenious. They got Lieutenant General Nye to write the letter himself. They briefed Nye on what he needed to put in the letter, and he wrote it in his own words, with his own hand, with his own handwriting here. And of course, as I said, it covered a lot more than the ruse. It, it buried the most critical part of the whole op- operation amongst paragraphs dealing with, you know, the, impo- the appointment of new commanders and how Nye didn't like the Americans were awarding British troops' purple hearts. But amongst all of this clutter and detritus in the letter, there was a small section that read like this. <clears throat> We have recent information that the Bosch have been reinforcing and strengthening their defences in Greece and Crete, and the Chief of the Imperial General staff felt that our forces for the assault were insufficient. It was agreed by the Chiefs of Staff that the 5th Division should be reinforced by one brigade group for the assault on the beach of Cape Araxos, and that a similar reinforcement should be made for the 56th Division at Kalamata. Now, that short paragraph was the entire point. It was, it was the point of this, this whole operation. It all came down to just this, this offhand reference to a couple of troops being manoeuvred around based on some new intelligence. They wanted the Nazis to read that, recognize that there was going to be this supposed invasion in Greece, and, and change their entire approach to, sending Southern, to defending Southern Europe from invasion. Now, they added a couple of other official documents alongside this personal letter. There was a letter of introduction for the fictional acting Major Martin from his supposed commanding officer, Vice Admiral Lord Louis Mountbatten. And there was also a letter from Mountbatten to U.S. General Dwight Eisenhower Uh, in one of these letters as well. These letters didn't just serve as window dressing for the important one, but they also served another very, uh, very interesting purpose here. Because in one of these letters, they planted, Montague and and Chumley, they planted a single eyelash as well right they put this eyelash in one of the letters that would tell them if the letters had been opened and read if the Spanish returned the documents and the eyelash wasn't there it meant that these letters had been opened anyway all of this uh, this correspondence these documents they were bunged together along with some literature on combined operations that was bulky enough to warrant attaching a briefcase to the corpse now you might be thinking why would they use a briefcase? Why did they need to f- come up with an excuse, you know, putting these 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 hefty sort of pamphlets and books and stuff? Why did they put them into a briefcase instead of just planting all of these letters in the pockets of this bloke? Well, the British were concerned, very interestingly indeed. They were concerned that the deeply Catholic Spanish might not properly investigate the corpse due to, you know, due to a respect for the dead and that the pockets might go unsearched whereas a briefcase was fair game and anything in it would probably be passed on to the Nazis. So, all these official and these official-ish documents were put in this briefcase. It had one of them chains that you see in films, where it's handcuffed to someone's arm. Although they thought that would be a bit much. I mean, why would this bloke be carrying a, a you know, a briefcase full of boring documents, handcuffed to his arm? So, what they ended up doing instead was just attaching it to his belt rather than his wrist. It felt like it made it made more sense. Maybe that, that's you know how he'd be sitting comfortably on this plane that he's supposedly been shot down, being shot down out of. And we, with everything in readiness now, all the props and the documents and this briefcase all duly prepared. The time, had actu- the time had come now to actually drop the corpse off the Spanish coast. And I mean, if we've talked about this operation requ- requiring, you know, a lot of care and planning so far, this next part they had to get absolutely right. Chumley and Montague, they consulted with hydrographers to, uh, to, to figure out the best place to leave the body so it would wash ashore. And there were thoughts about using maybe the Portuguese or the French coasts, but knowing, you know, as they did, that the Spanish were indeed passing information onto the Nazis while pretending not to to the Allies, Spain was considered the best bet. And, specifically, the coastline near the town of Huelva, right, in southern Spain, where the tides and the currents were most likely to wash the body ashore. Additionally, it was known that there was a German agent in this area who would be very interested to obtain any intelligence found on a drowned British officer. So, with the location decided upon on the seventeenth of April, nineteen forty-three, preparations were made for the body to be transported. Now, I want to remind you here: this is in April. This has all happened very quickly, within a matter of months. As I said, within three months, all of these plans have been made uh, after the uh, after the, uh, the the body of Michael had been uh, had been found and was was made ready to use here. So, this all happened at at, at pretty at a pretty swift pace here. And in April, Montague and Chumley. They prepared the corpse with the uniforms and clothing and personal effects and of course all of these documents. Uh, it was dressed up, it had all the all these accoutrements and accessories planted on it. There was one small problem they they couldn't get its boots on because the uh, the feet of the corpse had frozen. They couldn't fit the boots on. They had to thaw the feet out by an electric heater and then put the boots on. But with this done, they were ready to go. And the corpse was still in a condition that would probably pass a, a medical post mortem. They were hoping again that at this point the you know the 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 Catholic aversion to getting too involved with with corpses may actually. Aid them in getting in rushing this body through a post mortem. Maybe Catholic doctors wouldn't investigate too thoroughly and and, and realize that this body had been dead for months and months and months. Maybe that was actually going to work in their favor in some respects. Anyway, with it, with the corpse properly prepared, it was placed into a purpose built canister. This canister was filled with dry ice uh, alongside the corpse, and after it had been sealed up, the dry ice, of course, would sublimate into carbon dioxide which would prevent uh, prevent decomposition because this journey down to Spain was going to take a, a number of days and it wouldn't be possible to keep the corpse refrigerated for that time. So instead, uh, it would be in an atmosphere of almost total carbon dioxide, which again would, would slow down the, the decomposition process. So the canister was then driven up on the back of a truck to Greenock in Scotland, and there it was loaded onto a submarine, the HMS Seraph, with the crew being told that they were taking on board a top-secret meteorological device that they needed to deliver to the spanish coastline hardly anyone on board the submarine knew the true purpose of the mission just a handful of officers were told exactly what was going on i mean it was a very very strange mission indeed the sort of thing that you know if it had been talked about in, in any in any large scale it would have immediately undone the ruse so it was very much on a need-to-know basis the crew they took on board this canister that was thought to be this meteorological device and uh made ready to set, well, not set sail, I mean it's a submarine, but I guess set screw, I don't know, whatever, to to sail off towards Spain. So the submarine, it set off with its very unusual cargo on the 19th of April and arrived off the coast of Huelva 10 days later on the 29th, quite a, quite a long journey. Now, after a day's scouting to see that the coast was clear in both a figurative and a literal sense, the submarine surfaced at 4 o'clock in the morning on the 30th of April, just uh, just a little ways off the shore, the shore from Huelva. The crew brought the canister out of the submarine, and then everyone but the senior officers were sent back down below. Below decks, but they didn't want, obviously, any of the crew members to see what was actually inside the canister. The senior officers, the only ones who knew the truth about what they were doing, they opened the canister, they lowered the body, complete with all of its props and documents and everything else, into the water, and then they also went below, powered up the submarine's engines, which helped to push the corpse towards the shore, and they sailed away. About, about 20 kilometres away from, the, uh, from where they dropped the corpse, the canister was then offloaded, and in order to make it sink, it was riddled with machine gun fire. However, it didn't sink. The insulation of the canister uh, was was too buoyant and actually didn't. It kept the uh, kept the canister afloat, damaged as, as it was. So instead, they recovered the damaged canister and filled it with explosives and blew it to smithereens. That is certainly one way to solve the problem. I mean, just use explosives. That was the end of the canister there. Anyway, the HMS Seraphit sailed off with its job done, and sure enough, the corpse did indeed. Wash up on the shore. It was found at about half past nine that very same morning on the uh, on the uh, thirtieth of April by a local fisherman. Now he alerted some Spanish soldiers. The soldiers then took the corpse to the Spanish authorities, who then informed the British of the discovery. And now a very interesting, quite amusing, a little pantomime played out. Right, the British vice consul, who was obviously in on this whole operation, he knew what was going on. He sent a diplomatic cable back to London informing them of what the Spanish had found this you know tragic death of a of a British officer this bloke who had perhaps been shot down or whatever his cause of death was it was it was obviously very sad sent that back to London they go oh no that's terrible oh, very very sorry to hear it da, da, da we'll make all the necessary arrangements by the way was he carrying a briefcase and if so you need to make bloody sure that you get hold of that because it is filled with sensitive documents now this reply was, Staged. It was all part of the operation. It ordered the vice consul to retrieve the briefcase from the corpse at all costs due to the sensitive nature of its contents. And these messages were sent back and forth using a cipher that the British knew the Nazis had broken. And these messages were, of course, designed very deliberately to heighten the Nazis' interest in the corpse and specifically in the briefcase. Very, very clever thing to do indeed, of course, to support this ruse, making it seem like the, the British diplomats were very keen to get that British, uh, get the, uh, the briefcase back before it fell into the wrong hands there. And so all of a sudden now, with the Nazis having access to these diplomatic cables, their ears are pricking up and they start to pressure the Spanish. The Nazis put pressure on the Spanish to let them see the contents of the briefcase and all the other personal effects of this supposed officer whose body had been found. But the Spanish... They weren't going to be hurried, I'll tell you this. They held an autopsy the next day on the 1st of May, uh, although the British Vice-Consul, he was allowed to attend, of course, and he he did his best to subtly persuade the doctors to, oh, just, just half-ass it, boys, it's too hot, the corpse is smelly as all hell. Why don't we, you know, you just have a quick look at that, why don't we all stop and have some lunch, how about that? Now, the doctors apparently were all too ready not to... Do an in-depth examination of the uh, of the corpse there in their hurried state. They didn't suspect that they were working on a three-month-old corpse that somehow escaped their attention, and they signed the death the death certificate with drowning as the cause of the death, and they released the body to the British, who buried it with full military honors under the name of William Martin. However, the Spanish did not return. The briefcase. They held on to this for the time being. They didn't reveal its contents to the Nazis just yet. They took some time to figure out exactly what, it, what they wanted to do with it. They sent the briefcase to Madrid, and it was there that the head of the Abwehr, the Nazi military intelligence agency, it was there that he personally intervened to gain access to the briefcase contents. And we've actually met this fellow before. His name was Wilhelm Canaris. He was the bloke who masterminded Operation Pistorius, episodes uh, 78, 79, get across it. Now, Canaris, he ended up being executed as a traitor late in the Second World War uh, by the Nazis. He seemed to have done what he could to undermine some of the worst of the Nazi atrocities. For instance, he issued hundreds of Jews with special papers that identified them as Abwehr agents. He basically gave secret agent paperwork to hundreds of Jews so they could escape from Germany from the persecution and the murder that was going on there for them. But back in 1943, as an intellig- a very senior intelligence officer, he persuaded the Spanish himself to let the Nazis see the contents of the briefcase. And finally, the Spanish agreed. The thing was... The Spanish knew they had to return the suitcase to the British and they didn't want the British to know that they were allowing the Nazis access to information like this. Of course, we know that the British knew that the Spanish were doing exactly this. I mean, this was foundational to the success of Operation Mincement. Remember that plane crash that proved to the the British that the, the, the Nazis were passing this information on? But the Spanish didn't know that the British knew, like we know, that this information was tr- try to keep up, all right? Just just try to try to stay abreast of all this. So, here's how the Spanish managed to give the Nazis access to these documents while also hiding the fact that they'd done so from the British. The paper in the briefcase was still damp, even after it had been retrieved from the sea. It was still a little a little bit wet. Now, the envelopes that were containing these documents, right, still had their wax seals. Now, the Spanish didn't want to just rip open the envelopes, pull out the letters, take photos and like that. It'd be very obvious they'd been tampered with if the seals had broken. But the fact that they was the fact that all these documents were still wet allowed the Spanish to use a very interesting, quite a quite fascinating technique in order to get them out. They got a thin probe, they carefully slipped it into the gaps at the tops of the envelopes, and they wound the damp paper around this probe like a very very thin hair straightener not hair straightener the opposite a hair curler sorry very very tightly indeed. The probe could then be pulled back out of the envelope through these thin gaps with the paper rolled this wet paper rolled up in a cylinder around it without disturbing the wax seal and obviously it was a long and careful process but they managed to extricate all of these pieces of paper from all of these envelopes without breaking any of the wax seals. Once the papers had been taken out, they were laid flat, they were photographed, and then these photographs were handed over to the Nazis, who, just as the British had planned, now had all of this false information in their hands. With the photography complete, the Spanish then re-soaked the pages in seawater, they wound the back around the probe a page at a time, and then did the opposite. They inserted the probe into the envelope, unwound it, flattened the paper out inside the, uh, the envelopes like nothing had happened. The Abwehr took the photographs, sped them back to the Nazi high command, thrilled with his incredible windfall of intelligence. And the British, meanwhile, had the briefcase returned to them on the 11th of May, complete with all the documents seemingly untouched. The briefcase was returned to London. The documents inside were forensically examined. Not that it took all that much examination because the papers, which were still damp, once they were taken out of the envelopes and dried out, they curled up like bloody Pringles, mate. They'd been wound around this probe and then flattened out inside the envelopes, but that didn't stop them from when they, when they dried out, curling up like bloody old scrolls that you might see, might have seen, you know, made of papyrus from thousands of years ago. That was, that was, I mean, it was very, very obvious. And what's more, if that wasn't enough, from examining the fold lines of some of the papers, they could tell that they'd been opened and refolded. And most indicative of all, the eyelash was missing. And the British knew These documents had been examined and based on what had happened in the past with the Nazis and the Spanish cooperating so closely, it was a safe bet that the Nazis had seen the contents of these envelopes just as they'd planned. But they didn't have to rely on the assumption. More evidence that the papers had reached the Germans came in. The codebreakers at Bleschley Park were able to confirm that the Nazis were communicating with one another about this new intelligence from the Allies that indicated this planned invasion of Greece. And to complete the ruse... The British sent another diplomatic cable to the Vice Consul in Spain that they knew the Nazis would, of course, intercept, saying that the papers had been retrieved successfully. They hadn't been tampered with, thank you so much for your stellar work in ret- returning that briefcase, just to continue the bluff that the British thought the papers had not been read. So from the Nazis, Nazis' perspective, this is a slam dunk. They've managed to get their hands on this very, very sensitive information that that, that revealed this, uh, this, this grand plan that the Allies had to invade Greece. And the British... Are supposedly none the wiser that the Nazis have come across this information, so they are having a fantastic time. They think that they've uh, they've done a great job here. This is an absolute coup, uh, seizing this uh, this information, and uh, without the British catching on. But of course, in reality, it's the British who are now so far ahead of the game. The fact that the Nazis have fallen for this hook line and sinker, and Operation Mincemeat meets seems to have been a complete success. So. The Nazis, they had this falsified information, they had absolutely fallen for this trick, and despite Sicily being the obvious choice for an invasion, once Hitler learnt of the letters recovered from Spain, which were nicknamed the uh, the Anglo-Saxon Order in Nazi circles, he insisted personally, upon changing the plan to defend the Mediterranean. He moved troops out of Italy and into Greece, and he bolted Nazi defences in Sardinia as well, which was another target that I mentioned had been named as part of Operation Mincemeat. A panzer division was moved from France to Greece, torpedo boats were reassigned, and tens of thousands of troops were redeployed. To give you an idea of the numbers here, there was a single, just one, a single Nazi division in Greece before Mincemeat, while afterwards there were eight. And the, and the 10 divisions that were in the Balkans grew to 18. So a colossal amount of military resources were moved from Italy to Greece to, you know, to defend it from this supposed invasion that just wasn't coming. The ruse had worked, the Nazis had fallen for it, and when the Allies launched their eventual attack on the real target on Sicily, the campaign was a huge success. In July 1943, the Allies launched Operation Husky to to capture Sicily, and it quickly fell into Allied hands, leading directly to the collapse of Mussolini's regime. The Allies had anticipated losses of tens of thousands of troops in the Sicilian campaign, as well as hundreds of ships. They expected the fighting to last months. Three months was the uh, the projected uh, length of time for the Sicilian campaign. But in reality, they lost under 6,000 soldiers and just 12 ships. They expected to lose, again, hundreds. 300 ships was their projected losses. They lost 12. And the campaign, rather than taking 90 days, as predicted, it took 38. And while, of course, there were plenty of other factors that went into the success of the Sicilian campaign, you know, all the rest of the operations involved with Operation Barclay and the Nazis not prioritizing the defense of Italy, Hitler's weird obsession with holding on to the resource-rich Balkans... Whatever the reasons, Sicily fell to the Allied invasion, which caused Hitler to pull back in his campaign in Russia to bolster Southern Europe. And the Russian campaign never got back in, on track, which directly led to the USSR taking the, taking the, uh, the initiative in that theatre and marching on Berlin. And Hitler remained firm, even as the war continued, in his belief that there would ultimately be an attack on Greece and into the Balkans, even after Sicily had fallen, you know, as though the capture of Sicily was still just a ruse. And he kept troops there and up up to a fifth of the entire Nazi forces were kept in this area that the Allies were just not interested in invading. So Operation Mincemeat was an immensely important part of this military misdirection that that caused the Nazis to incorrectly deploy and manage their forces as we move from the mid to the late stage of the Second World War. And and the fall of Sicily, enabled as it was by Operation Mincemeat and everything else, was a huge victory for the Allies. It opened up the Mediterranean for Allied merchant ships and, and it brought about the undoing of Mussolini's rule in Italy and significantly would shape the ongoing course of the war. So the operation was a total success and I'm happy to say that those behind it, both Montague and Chumley, they were rewarded for their efforts. Both of them were inducted into the Order of the British Empire. Montague was made an officer and Chumley was made a member. And in 1950, a new spotlight was shone upon Operation Mincemeat when a former cabinet minister, after the war ended, published a spy novel novel named Operation Heartbreak, which was loosely based on Operation Mincemeat. This cabinet minister had been briefed on the operation and decided to make for a a very good bit of fiction. And so he wrote this uh, this novel, again, loosely based on it. But in response, Montague, in 1953, after receiving uh, approval from the Office of Naval, Naval Intelligence, he wrote the 1953 book the Man Who Never Was, which gave a somewhat guarded account, but still a fuller account that you might expect, of what actually happened during Operation Mincemeat, which of course was, this book was a bestseller, sold two million copies, people couldn't believe that this thing had been attempted, let alone was successful. And uh, the story was expanded upon further in 1977, years later of course, when Montague published his autobiography, which gave us a, a much fuller account that we never had had before. Even in the 50s, there were some, some sensitivities that the, uh, that the authorities at the time were, were attempting to keep under wraps, and uh, the full or fuller story was revealed to us as late as later in 1977. But, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, it wasn't until 1996 when the greatest mystery behind Operation, Operation Mincemeat was finally brought to light. And that is, of course, the identity of the corpse that was used. The bloke who discovered the true identity of the corpse used in this operation was an amateur historian whose name was Roger Morgan, and he discovered evidence that proved that the corpse had belonged to Glendower Michael. And since the discovery, since this, this, this evidence came to light in 1996, I'm very happy to say that the Commonwealth War Graves Commission has officially recognised Michael as someone who served in the Second World War, despite his service being posthumous. And in 1998, the grave of William Martin in Huelva, Spain, was updated to read, Glindua Michael served as Major William Martin R.M. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Operation Mincemeat, And it's always great to get a bit across a bit of spy history. You do love to hear it. So thank you to to Joe, to Ryan, and probably to James for sending the uh, the topic in. And everyone else, of course, who sends topics in so regularly. I appreciate every single one of you. Even if I don't get across all the topics, I do love to read through them. So keep them coming in. If you want to do so, history.net, There's a contact form there, of course. And you can find all the old episodes there. Um, a couple of issues have arisen with the feeds uh, for the uh, for the podcast. If you're having any issues, if it's on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or Pocket Cast or Podbean or anything else, I do want to hear about it so I can fix it. So if you have any data points to share, you can either use the contact form or jump on the Discord bit.ly/slash join Riley's Discord. If you if you scroll down, you'll find the h a h discussion tab, and it's in there that uh, we've been troubleshooting some of the connection or the some of the sorry the the feed issues that we've had here uh, it looks like the the uh, moving the podcast over to to a new server hasn't gone quite as smoothly smoothly as i orish, uh, or- originally thought so if you're having any issues whatsoever accessing episodes old or new please let me know so i can get that fixed up uh, if you want to support the show financially of course there are two ways to do it you can jump on the merch store head to the website halfhourshistory.net follow the link to the tea public shop and you can buy stuff there to your heart's content if you've got any ideas for new merch please let me know because i'd love to update the shop a little bit and uh, if you want to jump on the patreon patreon.com slash history, it's a great time to do so because of course we have just learned, launched in the last month brand new patreon only merch so uh, if you want to get across that of course uh, you can start supporting the show for uh, for as little as five dollars a month we'll get you access to that uh, that uh, patreon merch at no extra cost to you it's it's included in the subscription price there so if you want to get across that also access to all sorts of other stuff uncut episodes and the show notes and whatever else so you want to do that of course you can but if you don't hey no worries at all this podcast will uh, is and will remain free to listen to every week and I appreciate you being part of it. Uh, make sure to tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. That's it for this week. I'll see you back here next week for more half Hour History. Until then, leaving you with a question, of course, about drowning. The whole point of this, uh, this ruse was to make the Spanish and the Nazis think that this poor bloke had drowned off the Spanish coast. And so we have got a drowning-related question that comes to us here on Reddit from Pokemon God 777 who asks, If a synchronised swimmer drowns in a routine... Do all the rest have to drown with them?